while my friends are making their way to the front, I have a little public service announcement for everybody, and that is our security team is doing a great job helping me feel safe and doing a good job loving our congregation and watching out for you, but we have one new addition to the facility that I want you to know about. We have um, wisely installed some magnetic locks on the entry doors to the sanctuary in case we ever need to be able to lock the room to keep you safe for a second. The only ramification, and it's no, uh, no bad news at all for a short guy sitting here at five, nine and a half, but if you are six, five or taller, I recommend you duck just a bit when you come in the uh, sanctuary here for a while. And if you bring a guest who is six, five or taller, you may want to walk them in and say, duck your head. So I, I won't be surprised for the pastor if the new greeting, hey, it's great to meet you, man. It's nice to have you today. How tall are you, sir? But uh, no joke, mind your head, I would hate for your visit to church to be... But on the other hand, I mean, if you're hard-headed and God's been trying to get your attention and He uses those in His divine will, that's His business, right? So, duck. Listen, we're starting a new sermon series today called More Than You Imagined. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians, and our focus will be God's plan for the church. More than you imagine, the book of Ephesians, we want to discover God's real plan for the church. And where this sermon series is coming from, from my heart to yours, is is this. I believe that God's will, His plan, His desire, His dreams for the church are remarkable. I think they're amazing. But if you're like me and you grew up in the church, it's easy for us to become inoculated to the gospel, to the character of God, and even to the glory of being called to be the church. In other words, no offense, but like religion gets boring, church gets boring, you, you kind of feel drug in, you're like, what am I doing here? This is sort of routine and monotonous. Am I getting anything out of this? And sometimes I think we simply need to be awakened. In, in this book, in Ephesians, Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be opened so that we could see the riches of God's grace. And essentially, in this sermon series, that's what I want to do. I want to walk through one of the most beloved books of the New Testament, praying that God would open our eyes again so that we could fall in love again with the God who saved us and the gospel that redeemed us. I would love for it, this sermon series to take a bunch of folks like me and like many of you who've been in church forever, and if it kind of put ourselves on cruise control, I would love for this sermon series to get us off cruise control, for it to allow us to look up again and see how wondrous God is that we would fill the streets of the Pine Belt for the next several weeks, eager to find somebody to tell about Jesus Christ because we are absolutely enamored with Him. But I want to begin the sermon series by, uh, by an admission, just a little bit of an honest confession from a pastor. If the version of Christianity that you have subscribed to for the last year, if the version of Christianity that you have subscribed to for the last year has been about rituals and religion and routines, you are probably bored and rightly so. That version of Christianity is always going to be boring. And in fact, it seems to me that that version of Christianity, the one that is defined by rituals, religion, and routines, it seems that version of Christianity is excellent at making hypocrites or judgmental men and women. But it is not excellent at at inspiring anybody 
or creating change from the inside out or making your home a better place to live or giving you a new vision for God's calling on your life. And so what I'm asking us to do in the next few weeks is just to rediscover our faith. Like rediscovered why God called you. It would be very much like the person who, who loved basketball and played basketball and then stopped playing basketball for a while and started becoming the armchair quarterback, just criticizing everybody on the court. Scooted back for a little while and maybe coached little kids and pulled his hair out watching upward basketball kids not be able to dribble. But then one day, just for fun, at somebody's birthday party, they pulled out a ball and he started to play again. And he became alive because he'd forgotten how much fun it was to actually engage in the game. And I want us to realize that Christianity, at its core, like what Jesus died to bring us, is more than you can ever imagine. So I want to begin by reading Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. This will be our recurring prayer week to week to week. It will not be on the screen, Robert. I didn't give you this one. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And that's our prayer. Let me pray that for us as we get started with this sermon. Will you join me in prayer? Father, I pray to you, to the one who can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. God, that your spirit would come in and transform us, that you would open our eyes in this sermon, that you'd cut right to our hearts, that you would take away habits that have ruled us for years. God, that you would start us on a journey that would change our future, that would redefine the last years of our life. God, I pray that you would do more than we ask or imagine. I pray, God, you'd radically transform our vision of what we think we're doing in church and in Christianity, and that you would awaken us to your gospel call. God, I pray that you would set us on fire, make us alive, wake us up, that in your spirit you would do more than we could ask or imagine. And Father, I know that in this congregation, in my brothers and sisters, some of us are in hard places, some of us are in marvelous places, but Lord, for the work of your gospel to really take place in this fellowship, it would be more than we could ask or imagine. We could never dream, God, of what you're going to do through us this week if you have your way. And so I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to submit to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our sermon text, for more than you ask or imagine, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14 today. You need to know that in the scripture, these verses are one long sentence. It's a remarkable sentence, full of participles and verbs and flowery language, where Paul goes on and on and on and on, talking about the gospel of God's grace. Paul sounds very much like a new believer here. He's not a new believer. In fact, when he wrote the book of Ephesians, he's in chains. But he sounds like a new believer. He's got that fire. He's got that spark. He's amazed at the gospel, enamored at the gospel. Do you remember that for yourself? Is there anybody in the room that when you came to Christ, maybe especially those of you that came to Christ from a far away place, older in life, is there anybody in the room that when you first converted, you were so full of God, or maybe somebody that became a disciple for the first time, you were saved and poorly discipled, but when you gave your life to Christ, it's as if somebody lit a spark in your soul, you were excited, 
You were giddy about God. You would pray on and on. You were ready to read your scriptures every day. You might even journal. You wanted to invest in any opportunity that you could that would change the world for the kingdom of God. And you really believed that you were making a difference, that you could change the world, that you could bring people back to life from the dead. You would give them eternal life in Jesus Christ. You really believed that you were part of God's plan for the cosmos, and you were on fire. Anybody go through that season? Well, as you read Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14, you're reading words that sound like a believer on fire. And my prayer is that God would restore that to each of us. Let's read the text together from Paul the Apostle to the church in Ephesus. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with the pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. In this remarkable sentence, in Greek it's one long sentence. To make any sense of it for English readers, everybody's translation has made it several. But when it came off of Paul's pen, it was one spiraling, out of control, elaborate, majestic word of praise to the glory of God. And I want you to know today that in Christ and His plan for you, you are more blessed than you imagined. And I would like to show you in this text how you are more blessed in Christ than you imagine. First, I want you to know that you are actually giving glory to God. Like your life on the earth is giving glory to God. Now, it doesn't matter to me if you are a skid row conversion, if you came out of drug addiction and a lifestyle far from God and you were saved by God's miraculous grace, or if you were born in the church nursery and you naturally converted and gave your faith to Jesus Christ at age seven and have almost never done anything that would turn anybody's head. It doesn't matter. You are living for the glory of God. You are the praise of His grace. Every one of us in every pew, a trophy for God to show that He can redeem 
the most normal, to show that he can redeem the farthest away, to show that he can redeem everybody in between, to show that his promises are good, and if you've walked in them, you've been blessed, and you're a trophy of his grace. If you've wandered from them, and you made a mess of your life, and he brought you back, then you show that he's loving and merciful, every single one of you. No matter your background, you are living for the glory of God's grace. You're a trophy case, putting on display that you have a good God, a wise and godly Father, who wants to protect you with his commands, but a wise and loving God who is reckless in his redemption and willing to go get you from the far reaches of the earth. It doesn't matter your story. The squeaky cleanest one of you, whose righteousness nonetheless are filthy rags, or the prodigal son whose poster hangs in the prodigal son's office. You are a trophy of God's grace. And I want to show you in verse 6, in verse 12, and in verse 14, how this marvelous word of praise is defined by your life for God's glory. Let me read it to you. Verse 6, will you look in verse 6? To the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. Your salvation is, according to verse 6 of Ephesians 1, it is to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be what? For the praise of His glory. Look down in verse 14, the, the last word for this marvelous praise. Speaking about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it says this of the Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Just a reminder that as we gather at church, what's at stake in the body of Jesus is not the reputation of your family. It's not your reputation in town. It's not even the reputation of just Carterville Baptist Church. What's at stake in the life of a believer and in their response to God's grace, in their willingness to repent and confess and serve and love their neighbor, what's at stake is God's reputation, not just yours. It's crazy to me that God allows His reputation to be carried out, lived out, on the backs and the hands and the lives of people like me and you, normal, fallible, ordinary people. But it is true that you live for the glory of God. And in very many ways, our actions, our conduct, our heart, our mindset, and our worship contribute to or take away from God's reputation in the pine belt. But Paul wants you to know that more than you ever imagined, your life this week contributes to the glory of God. And I just want to open your eyes to that. I just want everybody to see that everything you do, every secret prayer time you have that nobody else sees, every step of growth that you take in Jesus that nobody else appreciates, every act of obedience that took everything you had to say yes to God, every time you turn the other cheek, every time you show love for your neighbor, it may look like nobody noticed this, but you are contributing to the glory of God. You are living as His sons and daughters, showing the majesty of His commands and His truth and His love for His creation. And I want to remind you that as such, your life matters greatly. Like if you feel today that you're not important, if you struggle with your self-identity or self-esteem, if you're looking to satisfy your identity needs by the approval of other people and you've just come up from that well, 
dry, let me remind you that you're not living for the glory of the person beside you or even for your own. Your life is intimately connected to the glory of God. And you are a trophy of His grace. And I want you to enjoy that and bask in that. And understand that it is your sacred mission to live the rest of your glorious life, however great or small, for the glory of God. On Tuesday, we'll gather to celebrate the life of Ted Pierce, a man that some of you know and some of you don't. Ted's been a man who's been crippled for years. He's been in the nursing home for many years, extremely infirmed. But he's a man that I know from 18 years ago, loved the Lord like nobody else in this room. I want you to know that even in the nursing home, wheeling himself down the hallways and trying to invite an orderly to join him at church one day, trying to remind somebody to bump into that God loves them and has a plan for their life, I want you to know that Ted Pierce's life contributed to the glory of God's grace. Even if people in the hallways never saw it, and yours does too. And on the day that we gather for your funeral, and you gather for mine, I hope that we can quietly know that it is true together, that your life was well lived for the glory of God's grace. Don't spend your life on your own glory your own reputation, trying to make yourself become some dent in God's eternal universe. Rather, live for His glory. Paul shows you a little bit about the character of God. As you live for the glory of His grace, I want you to know the gospel by which you were saved. It is rich, it's deep, and you live for a generous God. I think if we took a poll today at our schools, maybe around our streets, playgrounds, or even just in our neighborhoods, if people were honest and they told us what they thought about God, I honestly think that the caricature we've created of God in our generation is that He's angry and He's stingy. Now, don't misunderstand. God does have wrath, well-schooled in, in God's wrath. God has justice. God is justice. But I think that the dominant perspective that we have drawn on God just from our culture is that most folks out there, when they think of God... They think negatively. They, they, think, they think of God as wanting more from you. And, and I want to show you that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3-14, through 14, Paul wants the church to know that God is extremely generous. Let me show you some of the language that he used. And as I show you the language, I just want you to change the way you think about salvation. Now here's what I mean. For some of us, when we speak about salvation, about God redeeming it, we think of it just in terms of a legal contract. It's almost as if, at the moment of our conversion, we really just made an agreement with God, a legal agreement, both parties signing on the dotted line where we said, okay, God, I'll confess your name, I'll be baptized, I'll go to church some. On the other end, when I die, you make sure I don't go to hell. It's okay. That's how we think of salvation, a cold Legal transaction. Well, Ephesians 1 is about to rock your world and turn it upside down. Because that's not at all how the early apostles understood what Jesus died to do. That's not what you're in at all. And I want to show you that. Let me show you, first of all, the generosity of God. I wish that our culture could read this text and look up and say, maybe God's character is not 
so angry. Maybe God is more generous than I thought. Maybe God is lavishly gracious. Let's read a couple of texts. I want you to look in verse 3, and I want you to see what blessings God has given you in Jesus. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. According to Paul the Apostle, when you gave your life to Christ, when he died and rose again, he didn't give you some blessing, he gave you every blessing. Verse 6, how did you get this blessing? I find that I'm not the most generous person. I'm trying to do better, but I, I want to be more generous than I am. But in this text, God is lavishly generous. Look with me in verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loved. Nobody had to pry grace from God's fingers. Nobody had to back God into a corner and argue with him about saving the earth. From the foundation of the world, it was his plan that he would come to us and die. It was his plan that he would become a sacrifice, that Christ would take the cross, face death in the grave. It was his plan to redeem us. Nobody had to make him. Nobody had to hold his arm. Nobody had to twist his wrist. God freely gave. And not only did he freely give, but he gave you riches. Look with me in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with what? The riches of God's grace. Grace is a word that we know in church. It means a gift, an undeserved gift. In the world of the Ephesians, in the world of the Greeks, the word grace means a gift. A wealthy person in the community, a benefactor, would bless the community with a, with a banquet. He would give you food, a celebration, and he would pay for it. And that would be grace, him giving a gift. He might give a new business owner a good start. He might patronize you more than you deserve. He might come and help a mother that needed assistance. A generous, wealthy man in the community giving gifts to his community. It's grace. And there is no better example of grace than God himself, who I find to be the most generous giver in the cosmos. And the scripture said he freely gave from the riches of his grace. I want you to know that as you were redeemed, nobody had to beg God to do it. I want you to know that as God gave Jesus in your place, nobody had to talk him into it. There was no contract, no legal argument, no reward system. He did it because his heart is gracious and he redeems his people. And that's true of everybody in the Pine Belt today, by the way. Everybody you meet this week. The jail in Forest County is full today of people who God would love to redeem or already has. So is your neighborhood and mine. So is Walmart, Corner Market. So are the hallways of your school. God wants to give. He is a rich giver. And nobody has to twist his arm. I love this language in verse 8. He didn't just give it. He lavished it on you. Have you ever had somebody who was so generous in your life that it made you feel a little bit guilty? Has there ever been anybody in your life that when they gave gifts... They gave to the point that you just turned a little red in the face and you thought, I could never pay you back for this. Well, of course you can't. They don't even want you to. 
But have you ever had anybody that was such a good gift giver that they gave and they gave and they gave and they gave and you honestly started to feel like, good gosh, this is enough. Come on, I'm starting to feel like this is a little too much. I brought you an old tie and you brought me a new car. Come on, this is too much. Well, the Bible describes God in those terms in verse 8. Look, that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. In this word of praise to the God that saved us to start this church, God didn't just give a little, He gave a lot, He lavished it on you. I want you to know that you have more in Christ than you ever imagined. Your salvation, your redemption, it is bigger and more beautiful, it is deeper than you ever dreamed. You are intimately connected to the grace and the glory of God. As a trophy case of His grace, as a recipient of His grace, your life is His glory on display every day. You have great purpose And you represent a God whose character is good. You ought not be ashamed at all when you represent Him. Even if you're mocked for it, because I know His character to be infinitely good. That He is rich and loving and full of grace. And He wants to lavish His favor, unmerited favor, on any person in the pine belt who would open their heart to receive Him and give their life to Him. And I want you to see how this happened. If you look through verse 3 through verse 14, you will find a constant refrain. In these verses, and over 11 times, you will find the language in Christ, in Messiah, in Jesus. Paul makes it abundantly clear that the way that God lavished this grace on you was through Messiah Jesus who came to love you and save you. I want to show you what you have in the person of Christ, why the cross matters, and why I'm thrilled in my baptism and in the rest of my life to be following Jesus Christ. I want to show you the language of in Christ in verse 3 through 14. I want you to follow with me. And when you get home, you may take the whole chapter, all of chapter 1, and circle every instance where you see in or through or under Christ. I want you to see how important, how central Jesus is to the ministry of the gospel to you. Verse 3. In verse 3, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In verse 4, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. In verse 5, you were adopted. How? Through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, grace was freely given. How? In the one He loves. In Jesus, you were given God's grace. I want you to see verse 7. In Him... We have redemption. The word redemption in Greek means to buy back, as if to buy back a slave, to redeem, to buy somebody out of slavery. We've been bought out of our slavery to sin. Verse 9. God's will was purposed in Christ. Verse 10. I look forward to the day that we see the unity of all things in heaven and on earth. How? Under Christ. Verse 11. In Him we were chosen. Verse 12. You can hope in Christ. Verse 13, now you are included how? In Christ. Verse 13, you are marked with the Holy Spirit. You are sealed for your inheritance with a seal in Him, in Christ. As we look at our salvation, I want you to recognize that you did not enter some sad legal transaction with God much more glorious than that. In this small introduction to this beloved book of the New Testament, you see the work of Jesus Christ on display. Let me show you this. In Christ, Robert, in Christ you were chosen. According to what we just read, God picked you. The Spirit stirred in your heart and called you to Him. You're saved because He went looking for you just like He went looking for me. He chose you. In Christ you're redeemed. You're bought back from slavery to sin. Your sins are washed away and you're forgiven because Jesus took our place. He took our punishment. He died the death we deserved. And you now 
are redeemed. You're sealed. The Holy Spirit has sealed you and marked you with God so that He knows you as His daughter or His son. You won't be lost to the Father. Rather, if you need to know that you're marked by God, you are marked. You are sealed and secured, guaranteeing your inheritance. And you are promised an inheritance. You're adopted into God's family. The, the word in Greek that's used for adoption is a legal term. And the purpose of adoption in their culture, in Greek and Roman culture at this time, was primarily for inheritance. For example, Julius Caesar adopted Octavian so that Octavian could become the next emperor of Rome and inherit the legacy of Julius Caesar. You adopt a child in the first century Greek and Roman world so they could take over your business and your estate and your plantation and let your name continue to resound on to the next generation. In God, you were adopted. You were brought into His family so that you can have an inheritance. What inheritance? In Christ, all things on heaven and earth are being brought together in unity for a new heaven and a new earth. God is working even now in His Spirit to free us all from sin and decay and death, to undo the curse. And as the church, we get to be part of that. We are adopted into His family so that we can delight in His inheritance. As new creations, we can make the new creation around us. As we serve God, waiting on Christ to return and make all things new, we are His appointed representatives, His sons, His daughters, waiting for our inheritance. And I want you to know that that is a, a far cry from some legal contract. Rather than a legal contract, it's as if your salvation worked this way. When you stood at the judgment bench of God and you knew that you were guilty as a sinner and you imagined any other courtroom where a judge would look down from his high bench, gavel in hand, accusations clear against you, evidence against you as the court looked at you and the judge deliberated and issued the verdict innocent it is as if in the redemption we have in Christ it's as if God the high judge looked at us and he said you are as guilty as you can be but because of my richness I'll take the punishment I'll take the crime and I declare you innocent but then it's as if the same judge stands up from the bench and sheds his big black robe and lays aside his heavy wooden gavel and walks down from the stand and wraps his arms around you and says, would you come with me to my home to become my son? Will you be my daughter? Would you take my name? Would you delight in my inheritance? I'm not sending you back onto the streets. I'm not putting you back into a cell. I'm bringing you into my future. Would you come with me? Would you enjoy everything that I have to give? Would you delight in the world that I create and I design according to the mystery of my will and purpose? That's a far cry from a cold legal agreement. In Christ, according to Ephesians 1, the salvation that we've received, it is adoption. Adoption by Christ into God's family. The mystery of His will. That God would do more than you ever asked or imagined. And so as you sit in church today, if you say, Ben, I'll be honest with you, man. I, I love the Lord. I fear the Lord. But 
I'm that guy that's in a rut today. Like I've, I've been following the, the version of Christianity that is just rituals and routine. I've just been showing up and I sing sometimes. And, but Ben, I'm, I'm honestly not engaging the Lord. Then I want to just look at you and I want to wake you up and I want to say it's in Christ that you have more than you imagined. It's in Christ. And I want to draw you back to your first love. Back to the Savior who redeemed you. I want you to think less about church history and bylaws. Less about about tradition and order. And more about the Messiah that redeemed you when nobody else would touch you. I want you to think about the Messiah who redeemed you when nobody could find you or knew you needed Him. I want us to draw near to the power and person of the Lord Jesus Christ and His cross. Because I know that if, if we discover who we are in Christ as a church, We'll awaken as a church and delight in the gospel and delight in our salvation. And we will see that we've been saved for so much more than we ever could ask or have imagined. And as we prepare to scatter for a week of missions, I just want to call you to consider, are you in Christ today? And I guess I mean two things by that. There are a lot of believers in the room who you are in Christ, you're a Christian, but you've forgotten that. You've forgotten how central Christ was to you. You've gotten distracted. You've gotten beaten up. You've gotten tired. And you've started to think more about your obligations or our routines than you have about the person of Jesus Christ who saved you and intercedes for you right now at the right hand of God. And I'm calling you to rediscover your first love. Rediscover your Christianity as it was designed to be in Christ. That's much bigger than denominations or traditions or habits or practices. But second, there are people here today who by God's will were here today who would say, Ben, I'm not in Christ. I'm not saved. I've never made the decision yet to give my life to God. I've never asked for forgiveness of my sins through Jesus I've never submitted to baptism to give my life to Christ. Ben, I am not saved, and I know I'm not. Well, I want to say of all the people that came today, you may be the very most special because today could be the day of your salvation. And I just want to encourage you as you are in God's house with His people today. In just a moment, we'll stand to sing, and I ask you, simply make a decision in your mind to give your life to Christ and pray that to God. Tell Him that you are giving Him your life. Come and share with me. I'd love to talk to you about discipleship and about baptism, about how to follow Jesus together. We would love to celebrate with you as a church. But you can simply give your life to God today with your intentional choice. And I encourage you to do that. Let's pray together. I want to invite our musicians to come as we reflect on how God would have us respond. Father, I thank you for the work of your spirit and for the book of Ephesians. I thank you for the depths of the riches of your grace. I thank you for lavishing your grace upon us. God, I repent that we've ever thought of you as less than a generous giver. You have amazed us, Lord, with how much you've blessed us. And today we respond as a grateful church. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes over the next few weeks. And God, that you'd allow this church to delight in you so richly and deeply. God, that we'd be amazed at the power of your gospel transforming us and that we would give ourselves fully to your work. Lord, I pray that you would let us live for your glory in Christ. Father, I pray that today every person who's gathered for worship 
would understand clearly what our next step of faith should be. That we would say yes to you and serve as you see fit. That we would take our next step of growth as you're calling us to. That we would obey you. God, that even if our feelings don't agree, Lord, that we would step forward in faith. But Lord, for the brother or sister today that came to church looking for you, but realizes under your conviction that they're not saved, they're not a Christian, I pray, God, that you would redeem them and adopt them into your family today. God, that you give them the courage to call out to you and commit their life to you. I ask your blessings on all of us. In Jesus' name.